Welcome to the Baker McKenzie Latin America EMI podcast series, focusing on sector-specific issues that are impacting the players of the energy mining and infrastructure industry. You are listening to the Latin America Oil and Gas Amid COVID-19 podcast. It is our pleasure to introduce our speakers, Benjamin Torres, Projects Partner from Mexico City, Daniel Valois, Projects Partner from Trench Rossi Watanabe in Rio de Janeiro, Rodrigo Diaz de Valdez, Disputes Partner from Santiago, and a special thanks to our guest speaker, Carlos Morales, CEO of Petroval, the first Mexican private-owned upstream company with a vast experience in the oil and gas industry across Latin America. Hello, everybody. This is Benjamin Torres Barron. We want to welcome you to our podcast, Latin American Oil and Gas Amid COVID-19. We hope you find this conversation useful for your business activities in the oil and gas sector. Jointly with Daniel, Rodrigo, and Carlos, we will provide insights from our experience in dealing with the most relevant issues and opportunities facing oil and gas companies due to the COVID-19 effects. It goes without saying that this is a challenging time for the oil and gas industry that is being hit, not only with COVID-19 related disruptions, but with the dramatic collapse of the oil and gas prices. The oil and gas sector is the most cross-border, cross-cultural industry that there is, with assets commonly held among several partners and jurisdictions. In Baker McKenzie, we have seen a number of different reactions to current market dynamics towards addressing this different environment. We will start a conversation today by talking about our current environment and introduce to our good friend, Carlos Morales, who is the general director of Petroval, the first Mexican-owned upstream oil and gas company to join into our discussion over current oil and gas topics. We have a lot to cover in a short period of time, so we will move through each topic quickly. Carlos, it's really a pleasure to have you with us today to help us start understand what is going on in the Latin American oil and gas sector. I kindly ask you to share with us your initial insights. Please, over to you, Carlos. Thank you. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, uh, Baker McKenzie, for inviting us to participate in this podcast uh, for on, on the oil and gas business and the impact that the oil and gas business have had uh, amid the COVID-19. And thank you also, Daniel, uh, for the invitation and participation in this, in this podcast. Um, as, as as you know, this we have been the, the oil and gas industry has been, let's say, facing this uh, crisis of the uh, COVID nineteen uh, in in the middle of uh, a war, a, a price war between the big uh, producers of oil in the world. Uh, this is uh, this started actually uh, several years ago uh, when the uh, basically when the U.S. started to increase production. And uh, the other countries, the oil producing countries, particularly in the Middle East, uh, and associated to the OPEP, uh, they had to restrict production uh, in order to 
keep prices at a, at, at a level that uh, it could be beneficial for for everyone uh, but uh, that's that so that br bring the prices down you remember from the level of 80 or even 100 dollars per, per barrel to the level of 60 dollars per barrels between 60 and 70 talking about brent uh, and uh, that was sustained uh, from 2016 mid 2016 to all 2019 uh, but at that time basically the uh, russia and and uh, and uh, the saudis they were trying to to cope with a reduction of uh, let's say of the price going fast down to the order of 50 dollars uh, per barrel and that was basically due to the lack of demand in the uh, china uh, from the china consumers so that's 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 uh, an, an issue that was relevant at the at the end of last year and the beginning of this year uh, then the uh, this uh, uh, the reduction of demand came uh, across the world as the covid uh, expanded rapidly uh, to the order of the and and then it reached 30 dollars or so uh, due to that fact and then the demand collapse basically due to the effect of covid and it's bring the price of oil uh, to the level of the 20s uh, that, that where we are today so that's that's the 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 world scenario that of course have been uh, uh, let's say impact uh, the uh, our latin american countries that's uh, the the oil particularly the oil producers where like uh, brazil mexico Argentina, Colombia, and, and Venezuela that has additionally to, to that other kind of problems. So that's, uh, that's the scenario that we have, that we have today. And uh, all these countries, Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, and Colombia, particularly those four, they have uh, very important plans to increase production. And they had projects ongoing to increase production with that, with that level. I mean, there was a in the case of Mexico, there was a commitment of the Mexican government uh, to increase production and to uh, strengthen Pemex as well. And the same thing was was happening in Brazil. Brazil had has already uh, pro, uh, projects to increase to increase production, very important ones, and uh, they were also uh, let's say caught in the middle of this of this crisis. Argentina was also doing its part. Uh, with the uh, Vaca Muerta, particularly the development of Vaca Muerta, uh, with the participation of international oil companies, the IOCs that wanted to increase participation there. And Colombia was reshuffling their, their structure there in the, in the oil and gas industry. So this, this is, uh, let's say, the scenario that we found uh, when the, the crisis, the price crisis came into the, into the picture. So that's uh, uh, we. Every, every country has its own uh, or to particularly uh, particular conditions that uh, may take into account in order to uh, react to this, to this crisis. Plus the differences in cost of production, that's actually one, one issue. The difference in capital cost that the projects needs is, I mean, we, we have that differences uh, while Argentina is mostly 
focus on the jail activities in Vaca Muerta. Uh, Brazil is mostly focused on the deep water, and Mexico is basically uh, doing in the middle also of a implementation of the reform that was also, uh, let's say, slowed down uh, by Mexican policies. Uh, that makes a, a totally different condition for each one of, of the countries in Latin America. Uh, this <clears throat> Mexico has uh, against the, I mean, in, in terms of the cost of production, in terms of the cost of development, Mexico has, let's say, a more balanced portfolio, while it is most of the reserves are in, in shallow waters and onshore. And uh, Argentina has more shale uh, resources and Brazil has more deep water resources. So that's, uh, everyone has to take into account that in order to react to this, to this crisis. In some cases, they, are, they have implemented different policies, like uh, for instance, stop uh, uh, projects, particularly if they, they, they were oriented or they were managed or operated by, by private companies, uh, in, as in the case of Vaca Muerta, they had to, to, to stop and reduce the level of investment they were uh, considering for this year. Um, also, the uh, level of uh, cost of expenditures in, in capital in Brazil, where the, I mean, uh, developing uh, deep waters is, is something that is very, 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 uh, let's say, important that once you take a decision to go on, you cannot stop that. I mean, so the, uh, those differences have been also in implementation these years, and they have to adjust uh, everything to, their, uh, to, the con to the particular conditions of each country. Uh, another issue that uh, is impacted is the fiscal uh, uh, conditions that each, each one of the countries has. The dependency on the income from oil there is also a different issue in each one of our countries. Mexico is highly dependent still, even when it has been reduced uh, very importantly from the, in the last uh, uh, 12 years or so, the, the, the dependency that Mexico has on uh, oil revenues is, is a very important for the state. Um, so, so it is, uh, the con this condition makes also that Mexico is, is more difficult to react to in terms of policy to implement this, these conditions <clears throat> that, uh, that are necessary to cope with the, with the crisis implemented uh, and be, be ready also for the reaction that we should take uh, forward. Considering all these facts that we were talking about, the uh, projects that were in the portfolio of each one of the of the companies in our countries, the differences in costs that we have, the difference in, in policies that we have to that uh, we have to implement in each country, the fiscal conditions that differentiate each country, and there is one issue that is very important for us, which is the uh, the regulatory conditions and how the regulations should be adapted to these new conditions. I mean, they they have to uh, usually regulators they don't they are not easy to accept. Uh, changes in the development plans or in the exploration plans of the companies, since it is it has an effect even deeper in the fiscal conditions of the of the countries. So 
to talk about that. I think uh, uh, it's, it's an honor for me to give the word to Daniele uh, Balois so that uh, she can talk to us of how, how does she, she sees these uh, new conditions in the regulation framework. Okay, thank you, Carlos. Uh, I totally agree that it's time for the government of our jurisdictions to make all four efforts possible to simplify their policies and bring more certainty to the legal system and, and make it less dependent, dependent on the political uh, scenario of each country to bring more uh, certainty to investors. So uh, I think it would be good uh, to, to mention that uh, just before the breakout of uh, COVID-19, the governments of uh, various of the LATAM uh, jurisdictions that we'll be dealing here in this uh, podcast were already making a lot of efforts uh, to attract foreign investors and to simplify and bring more efficiency to their uh, regulatory system. We see Argentina, despite of the crisis, uh, starting uh, right before COVID, a series of, of measures to reduce the production and export cost of Vaca Muerta. Uh, we also observed uh, a great movement of uh, Peru Petro, which is the state company of Peru, uh, leading an initiative together with oil companies that are operating in Peru to untie the regulatory curbs uh, that were affecting the pace of development of oil and gas projects in Peru for several years. Uh, as you know, Peru, just like any other Latin country, has several authorities ruling the oil and gas industry. And there is a, a clear lack of alignment of uh, these authorities in most uh, Latin countries. And Peru Petro was uh, jointly with oil companies trying to simplify and bring more efficiency in this multi-party communication. Uh, in Brazil, uh, as well, uh, after a, a long period of uh, uh, a long process of regulatory modernization that started back in the Temer administration and continued with Bolsonaro administration and was already being intensified by the Petrobras divestment program, uh, was Brazil as a country was in an investment prone mode uh, with a more liberal uh, agenda that we have with the Bolsonaro administration, bringing several new players and billions of new investments to the country. So uh, the moment in which COVID found uh, LATAM was a, a moment where we were starting to face a new cycle of transition for a more liberal uh, arena. And at the end of February, beginning of March, when COVID uh, the COVID pandemic started to affect more seriously our countries. Uh, virtually all uh, federal and local governments started to declare state of emergency in the oil and gas provinces in Latam. And of course, naturally, oil and gas companies started to deal with the safety and health of its people. Uh, I see that uh, the HSC rules, which have been historically focused on safety and environment, of course, health as well, but they are now, uh, as we speak, being reviewed to make sure that the, the health concerns that we are experiencing from the COVID pandemic are well addressed towards the protection of the oil companies' uh, workforces. And I also see a movement from the HSC superintendents of the regulatory agencies of the various countries now reviewing their regulation to adapt the rules that 
the oil companies will need to abide by uh, in the post-COVID era. So uh, in, in the oil activity per se, as you know, uh, as everyone who has been experienced that knows, uh, has not been suspended or interrupted in any of these countries that we are dealing with here in our podcast. But naturally, some hurdles are appearing on a daily basis because of the lockdown or other activities and also the social distance restrictions that affect the life of people in general, especially on the transportation, housing of oil and gas professionals who need to travel in most cases for the areas where oil and gas operations take place. So uh, since oil and gas activities are considered essential activities, uh, they, are not, uh, they are not being uh, affected directly by the, the decrees that are being issued by uh, the several uh, governors and mayors and presidents of the Latin jurisdictions because uh, these uh, acts, these uh, executive orders are expressly carving out the oil and gas activities uh, from the activities that are being subject to the shutdown. Uh, but we see, uh, despite of that, uh, some impact on, on oil and gas activities because of transportation and uh, housing issues from time to time. Um, one, op one interesting topic from the regulatory side that came up this week in the middle of uh, the pandemia from the regulatory side in Brazil was that the, the National Oil Agency, the ANP, issued this week uh, a resolution that regulates the decommissioning activities in Brazil. This resolution was in debate for over two, two years uh, now. Uh, the ANP was in conversations with the Navy authorities and also the environmental authorities about how to frame the decommissioning activities in Brazil. And it was finally issued now uh, which I believe is a good moment, a uh, good timing to cure the legal uncertainty surrounding the commissioning, since it's possible that there will be uh, some relinquishment of areas that uh, will be excluded from the portfolio of oil companies as they start the review of their portfolio as a result of the moment we are facing now. Uh, it also brings an opportunity, of course, for service providers because there were a lot of uncertainties on the decommissioning uh, arena in Brazil, how it would play out, and companies who naturally engage in decommissioning activities were on hold uh, to offer their services to oil companies because they were not sure about the liabilities that they would be assuming as a result of these activities. And the government has just announced that they expect to raise about... Uh, 20, over 20 billion in investments uh, in Brazil as a result of the, 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 the commissioning services that will be uh, rendered here by service providers uh, that were hired, uh, will be hired by all companies in the next five years. So the, the interesting uh, and sui generis uh, uh, point of the regulation is also that it states that the possibility of the national agency to auction uh, through an open acreage process, onshore areas which relinquishment has not yet taken place, but it's imminent, it will take place within 24 months before the end of the production phase. So even before the end of the concession agreement, the ANP may include uh, these areas that will in the future be relinquished in the, in the open acreage process 
for onshore offer of areas. So this is a, an interesting regulatory involvement that we had in Brazil. Uh, we also observe from the regulatory side that the agencies are uh, at this uh, emergency situation taking a more flexible approach uh, and providing for release and time extensions for compliance with some obligations of EP contracts. In Brazil, for instance, we have uh, the easing of uh, deadlines on EP contracts and also the possibility of extension of exploratory phase uh, for nine months, actually, in, in, in blocks, uh, in Brazilian blocks. So uh, this is uh, these are the involvements that we see from the regulatory side. And uh, I, I expect that uh, this is just the beginning and I believe that the authorities from our jurisdictions will tend to, to dedicate their time and efforts to simplify our policies, to bring more certainties to our legal systems in the oil and gas sector. So uh, this is all I had to say about the moment uh, we are living, we're facing now with COVID, at least from the regulatory side. Um, as I mentioned, LATAM will be dealing with a shift in the regulatory uh, uh, aspects and companies uh, must and will more likely adjust their business to, uh, to the new playing field. Uh, Rodrigo, what have you seen uh, in regards of uh, public and private contracts and how are companies dealing in their, with their relationships with suppliers? Thank you, Daniel. As we are all saying in the oil and gas industry, circumstances that were foreseen at the time of entering into a public and private contract have changed. In some countries, the oil and gas sector continues to operate, as in the case of Chile, Colombia, Peru and Venezuela. However, in Colombia, for example, we have evidence that operations are not working at full steam due to preventive measure being taken. In the case of Peru, even when activities are legally continuing, the local demand for oil and gas has decreased dramatically, making companies rethink their operations. Force majeure, hardship, insolvency are sensitive topics we all have listened nowadays. However, it will depend on the local governments and oil and gas authorities to analyze the COVID-19 effects in the market. In Brazil, for example, the National Agency of Petroleum has the power to determine which obligations are to be waived or postponed because of force majeure. Unfortunately, COVID-19 has come along with contractual and legal conflict. In my view, companies are now in a negotiation phase, trying to avoid dispute. In that regard, I would like to invite you to remember always that settlement agreements are frequently better than a good litigation. A litigation always involve additional costs and uncertainty about the outcomes. Be aware about the alternative mechanism of dispute resolution as the mediation or direct negotiation can be of much utility. But sometimes litigation and arbitration may be the only way to solve dispute, especially when you do not have 
rational offers. My suggestion is to be aware of the critical potential dispute arising out of COVID-19. Be prepared, conduct internal assessment, reality check of argument and evidence, and involve legal counsel since the beginning as well, to avoid litigations. Some negotiations are more commercially influenced. In this case, involve your legal counsel as well. Instruct your team to be conscious on the way they read email to supplier and clients. Be aware of the utility of written evidence on a potential litigation or arbitrations. How is the economic balance of the contractual protected? It is a difficult question. In the case of a foreign company, it is important to be aware of the international investment treaties that may be of applicable for the protection of the foreign investor. Well, all of this indicates that the rule of the game have changed. In that regard, Daniel, could you provide us your perspective about what is going to happen with ongoing projects? What are the strategies that companies are addressing in terms of continuity plans aimed at service interruptions? Thank you, Rodrigo. Uh, there is uh, really a lot to be said uh, here about uh, how uh, the, the, the companies will continue their plans. Um, I believe that uh, the times of uh, easy oil is over, as we have been discussing. Uh, we are living trying times. Uh, there were already structural changes in the market that, uh, of course, caused immediate reduction of the profitability of important projects. Um, our clients and all companies, all companies, both service providers and oil companies are reviewing their service providers and their, their investment portfolio at this stage. Uh, oil companies are reviewing their contracts, are working intensely on cost reduction strategies and uh, reviewing all the inefficiencies of field operations that are, that are needed to be addressed for quite a while and that now become became an urgency. Of course, jobs are and will continue to be at risk. Uh, and from the contractual side, uh, I believe that at this stage, there will be uh, in the upcoming weeks or months, a new wave, I believe, of uh, opportunistic uh, contract review and contract termination. Uh, contractors on the other side, as I observe uh, from the relationships of our clients, they are trying uh, all efforts to avoid a uh, force major event because they know they feel they are vulnerable. So uh, uh, we see that they are trying innovative and in alternative ways to mitigate the, the adverse effects of COVID uh, to comply with their obligations and avoid the fall. Uh, even if uh, the governments of uh, all, all uh, jurisdictions pretty much are leveling uh, COVID as a state of emergency that clearly will be uh, interpreted by courts as uh, triggering of a force majority event. Uh, there will be, of course, the evaluation in the future 
uh, of the, the specific facts involved in each case. Uh, the mere fact that COVID appeared cannot be lead as a, as a defaulting uh, exclusion, uh, uh, excuse actually, uh, of the, the obligation to comply with uh, the contractor's obligation. And uh, we see a, a lot of efforts from contractors to, uh, to comply on, on ways that originally they, they would never uh, consider. Uh, for the midterm, I think that there will be uh, an intensification of a trend that uh, we observe uh, likely in the past, which is the involvement of the nature of the relationship between oil companies and key contractors. Uh, in my view, uh, in the upcoming years, we will observe a shift of the relationship of oil companies and uh, contractors from a transactional approach to uh, an association approach that is uh, more collaborative and risk and reward and more mutually benefit for both parties. And, uh, and here I'm not actually taking only about uh, incorporated joint ventures. I'm actually talking about, and I'm more enthusiastic about the non-incorporated joint ventures, uh, alliance agreements, for instance, which are risk and reward based uh, maybe contracts in, uh, in certain, uh, in which uh, contractors will share some risk of the field operation and will be proportionally rewarded for the success of the project. Uh, and probably this rewarding will be partially dependent on the cost reduction, which is the main trigger of this uh, new format of contracting at this stage. So we already see a global movement of a strategic alliance, but I see that uh, there will be an intensification of these uh, strategic alliances uh, when we talk about the relationship with contractors and oil companies. And I think that uh, I was reflecting about that another day. I think that the, the, the corruption scandals and all the compliance issues that the oil and gas industry lived a while ago which led to the transparent era that uh, we are now living, uh, we have actually benefited uh, these future uh, strategic alliances because we will need more transparency and stronger governance to enable uh, this uh, change of mindset uh, for the shifting of the approach from the transactional and more adversarial uh, contract model into a, a more associative, collaborative model that I believe uh, will uh, be considered by many players of the industry, targeting uh, the gaining of more efficiency and, and uh, cost reduction as well. Uh, so this is my perspective uh, from, a, from an energy lawyer who is observing the industry. Uh, but I would also like to hear from Carlos Morales uh, from uh, an oil company perspective, how he sees uh, the continuity of the plans of an oil company, such as Global, of course, uh, in the middle of uh, the, 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 the moment that we live right now, which is the combination of the lower oil demand with the price war that we, we just mentioned. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Daniel. Uh, Yes, of course, it is, it is a very interesting topic. What what companies are going are going to do uh, in terms? Uh, you know that in in terms of production, this crisis 
uh, have, uh, let's say, uh, put everyone in the middle of a, of a price war that uh, facing the three, the three main producers in the world. And uh, that uh, is coming up today that we are facing an oversupply. And uh, on the other side, there is a, a strong, um, let's say, shift of the demand downwards. So that, uh, uh, I mean, we have the perfect, perf perfect storm here that uh, makes prices, as we said, in the in the conditions that we have today. So companies have to uh, have to take measures very uh, rapidly, uh, I should say, uh, in terms of uh, let's say first first of all assessing the portfolio and uh, the what what their portfolio how their portfolio of projects is composed. Uh, if they have, for instance, projects in shale, they have projects in shallow water, they have projects in conventional assets, they have projects at uh, deep water, and uh, each one uh, of those portfolios and each one of those companies uh, will have to restructure that, uh, that, that portfolio. Uh, that will give also uh, bring an important activity on transactions that are uh, many companies are trying to sell their assets at this moment, even when, when the, I, I think it is not the, the proper time to, uh, to start selling assets because it is, it is uh, I mean, but there, there, is, there is companies that uh, don't have any other, other option. So given that, given the, the, that the companies will, uh, will have to manage the asset portfolio restructuring, uh, they will also, there will be a cancellation of projects. And that depends on the type of projects that you, uh, you have in your portfolio. For instance, I mean, uh, uh, when, when you talk about cancelling projects in terms of uh, in a shale basin, uh, you're talking about, uh, let's say, stopping drilling. That's and stopping uh, fracking. So that's that's basically the, what what you what you do. But the operations, I mean, the operations of the of the wells already drilled, that the ones are already producing, they will continue, and they have to to squeeze uh, the cost if if they if they want to be let's say efficient in the in the production of the oil and gas that uh, they, they they have. But the, if you are offshore, for instance, or you have already started a project, uh, it is, I mean, it depends on the progress that you have in that project, uh, you will take the decision of, uh, let's say, suspending the project or temporarily, or even canceling the project if, if it is uh, something that, uh, I mean, you are uh, in the early stages. Uh, but if you are uh, well advanced in the, in the development of the project, uh, most, most, mostly uh, the decisions are going to be to continue and be ready for better prices hoping for better prices uh, in the in the future so that's that's and and same thing applies for uh, for deep water i mean if, if you have a deep water project where you have already invested uh, the uh, hundreds of uh, or even billions of dollars uh, then most probably you will continue uh, to finish those, those projects and with the conditions of the contractors. And as Daniel says, uh, a contractor relationship is gonna change. Uh, also, it has to change because uh, the risk uh, today is uh, on balance. And uh, some, some companies, they don't, they don't share the risk of the operator, and, but they share some of the benefits of being, uh, let's say, ex executing the projects at, uh, 
um, let's say a food capacity. So that's one of the issues that uh, companies are working on. And besides that, uh, also operating companies, another thing that we are facing that we will talk later on, uh, or I would like to talk later on, uh, is uh, the energy transition. So there is a change in the perspective of the of the of the oil oil and gas companies. I mean, everyone was talking already for several years of having greener, uh, let's say, uh, conditions in the world. So, but we will talk about that uh, later on today. The, what we have is uh, uh, storage restrictions uh, for uh, oversupply. Uh, we have the the companies are going to reduce the manpower to the to the lowest possible level and the cost at the lowest possible level. So that's what we are doing and restructuring their portfolio, canceling projects where where you you can cancel it and continue projects where there is no other choice. Expecting, as I say, for better for better prices in the future. Thank you, Carlos. Uh, I have one question. Uh, I understand that uh, now it's time to review and cut costs and uh, the immediate actions are necessary. One question that I have, Carlos, is whether you believe that uh, there will be uh, in the in the midterm or even in the short term uh, more investments on R&D around the world. Uh, targeting uh, precisely the the uh, modernization of the operations, digitalization, and uh, even of course cost reduction and more efficiency on uh, field operation. Do you believe that there will be a trend of increasing investment in R and D for the upcoming years? Yeah, the the oil and gas uh, business is, has been the, let's say moving towards uh, digitalization uh, already for several years and uh, of course i mean these new conditions that we will have in the in the world will oblige uh, the oil and gas companies to move even farther in the digitalization era but not not aiming uh, from the point of view of reducing manpower but instead uh, of being more efficient in the in their operations to identify uh, for instance to identify failures more quickly and be able to react to identify uh, the conditions that you are working in a given in a given platform and be able to react faster so those things i think that we are going to move uh, in that in that direction as well of course uh, when you go to subsurface activities, subsurface activities, I mean they 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 are they have been moving, uh, uh, and not only moving but uh, also being at the front of the movement of digitalization in several in, in several areas like uh, geophysics and uh, uh, well logs and all that. So these companies, I mean the companies that are uh, developing technology in that in that con in in that sense. Uh, they are leaders in the in the world, and most of the let's say developments that have been let's say uh, applied in the oil and gas industry, then they, those <coughs> those new technologies have been later being applied in other fields of the of the sciences like medicine or uh, let's say uh, mining or other activities. Hmm? Well, maybe I can I can add to what Carlos was was uh, mentioning already and to follow into this conversation. Um, I, I would 
I would agree with Carlos that while there are some limitations impacting the, the deal execution, there continues to be a path forward for completing the deals. And uh, we have willing buyers and willing sellers uh, convening into, into a specific uh, execution and, uh, and celebrating transactions. Uh, we are seeing utilization of a variety of valuation and retiring mechanisms. Uh, there is a reassessment in the value of the targets and adjustments in the purchase price. Uh, some of them will deal with an indemnity arrangement and some others will uh, subject the transaction to the occurrence of certain events. But in the, in the long run, I mean, the, the transactions continue to happen. They continue to be in executed. Um, the fall in oil prices together with the disruption caused by the COVID-19 significantly will increase the, the deal risk. Uh, most of uh, oil and gas companies are experiencing a severe financial distress, leading to what is anticipated to be a surge in the bankruptcy filings. But still, uh, the world is moving. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected on the ability of businesses around the globe to maintain operations and fulfill existing contractual obligations. It is a fact that COVID-19 classification as pandemic by the World Health Organization will trigger a force major clause that expressly accounts for pandemics. Force major clauses also will excuse a party non-performance under a contract when these extraordinary events prevent a party from fulfilling its uh, contractual obligations. However, it is important to consider that each jurisdiction could have a different approach, definitions, principles, and criteria on how those the force major operate and triggers. Extra time needs to be added into the transaction to address logistical constraints in completing this deal. With a substantial number of people from the private and public sectors working at home, it will likely take more time to negotiate and close the deal terms until you successfully you know, take it into, into a, an achievable time. Um, I will shift now into, into um, the energy transition, which is obviously a hot topic that I think has become uh, even more interesting nowadays. I would say that this is a topic that has evolved intensively. And if we had a conversation about energy transition before COVID, now it takes, you know, it really makes more sense to start having those conversations. Uh, on one hand, as Carlos mentioned before, you know, many companies, whether those are oil and gas or just any other company, they just want to go green. They are concerned about the sustainability policies and about the message that is conveyed into their uh, clients and customers. And they are really pursuing and exploring other sources of energy in order to continue operating under this environment. Uh, in addition to that, I think it's no longer about the image. I, I think it's no longer about the reputation, but because it makes business sense. And why I'm saying that, because given the recent developments, the discoveries, the technologies and innovations that we had in the world, the technology of generation, including solar, wind, 
and sometimes battery in, in certain cases, now becomes attractive financially and economically to the off-takers and generators. Just, just to give you an example, you know, since 2019, I'm sorry, 2009, the cost of photovoltaic modules has fallen around 80%, and the cost of wind turbines are now decreased between 30 and 40% nowadays. The renewables have the fastest growth in the electricity sector and are expected to provide almost 30% of the power demand by 2023. And we also expect that only solar and wind generation themselves will provide almost 50% of the global power demand by the year of 2050. Already in many jurisdictions, the unsubsidized utility scale solar is already cheaper than nuclear, coal, diesel, or many other fossil fuels. Really what is happening with the companies, many oil and gas companies are evolving to become energy transition companies. In fact, many of them are not want to be seen as the traditional oil and gas companies, but rather as an energy transition. Some of them are investing aggressively in renewables for many years, and their focus today is biofuels, biopower, and wind energy and solar. Most of appliance in the oil and gas uh, uh, um, sector are investing in clean energy solutions to the extreme that some of them have a clear plan of reorienting their business models towards a renewable energy-centric business. And in fact, many of these companies are now aiming toward a cleaner future with less carbon emissions. We have seen many recent announcements of many oil and gas upstream companies that have just committed to become net zero up to a certain day. That would be 2030, 2040, or even 250. But the aggressively commitment that they have taken towards the environment to become net zero uh, into reducing those carbon emissions, you know, it is uh, well received by the economic market and by the sustainability defenders in the world. So really, you know, with the disruption of many other technologies, such as the energy storage, companies now, especially nowadays with uh, the light of this pandemic, they now can be independent. They now they can develop smart grids. Now they can store energy during non-peak hours and release energy on demand as the grid requires. And after all, as I underlined before, it is considerable cheaper and faster to develop the generation facilities that you traditionally know uh, utilizing uh, fossil fuels. So, I think we should continue on the energy transition discussion, and there is there is a lot of topics that we can we can evolve. But I think that will be for now, and I will turn it over to you, Carlos, and Danny, if you want to wrap it up in our discussion. Well, as as, as you know, I mean, this uh, certainly the renewables have been, the, let's say, taking the, let's say more market share uh, along all these years. Uh, every time that you make a, a new let's say, prediction of uh, what is the, the percentage of uh, energy market that they are going to cover, uh, everything you get wrong. And uh, because it's, uh, I mean, everything is, is, it is succeeded by the, by the way these projects are being developed. Uh, so uh, 
that's something that uh, has been we have been observing that during the year it is true also that uh, this growing rate is associated with the level of participation that the renewables ha have today in the market which is as i say in a, in the in the in the low in the low let's say levels of 2 3 4 4% in in some in some cases, so that is uh, uh, that is something that we have to to bear in mind. That I mean, they they are dependent also uh, another issue of uh, natural conditions like a wind and on or sunlight that uh, we uh, let's say it is not uh, restricted and it is not uh, let's say as regulated as as it is the oil and gas as the, the as it is the oil and gas business and there is no an international market for sunshine or wind and uh, and so you cannot commercialize that i mean the countries today they don't commercialize that but internally in in their own countries uh, let's say given let's say participation to private companies in order to expand the capacities of generation or generation capacities uh, for uh, let's say using this type of uh, primary energies so the developed countries in the northern hemisphere uh, there is another another issue that uh, they, they they cannot substitute entirely the their needs that they have for this type of energy in the in the near future so that's one one side because they need much more energy than they can capture from this from these sources. Uh, so that's one one thing. Uh, I, uh, so in favor of that is that high oil prices uh, are were used to to attract or to be attractive for investing in in, in exploration and production. Uh, but now with lower project low, lower prices, I mean the attractiveness of oil oil projects is is lower. But it is also true that uh, it makes more competitive against the, the, the renewable activities since the, uh, with lower or, or cheaper prices in oil and gas, then the renewables are less competitive with this, with this project. So those things we have to balance in the, in the market. And uh, of course, there is going to uh, continue the, the growth. What I envision, it will be uh, something that uh, we can continue increasing the capacities of the renewables in a, in a market where there is more need for energy in general. So there will be more need for energy in uh, fossil energies and this uh, natural energies of sun, sunlight and wind. So that's the, I think if we do that, then that will mean that the that the world is developing, so we we should not see this as a competitive issue between type of energy, but uh, as a complementary. That's that's the, the the vision that I that I have. And as as long as we are able to uh, increase uh, work, let's say uh, demand or labor demand, excuse me, and uh, to uh, let's say to participate in, the, in, in all the manufacturing activities, then there will be more energy requirements. There will be more energy requirements for transportations as well, and there will be also need for all these types of energy. Uh, it is also known that uh, uh, oil demand uh, is expected to peak in the in the 30s. Uh, sometimes they say 
mid-30s or late-30s and sometimes early-30s. But uh, the, the fact is that the oil demand is going to peak. And I, I think that's, that is uh, certain. But uh, that doesn't mean that new projects will have to come into the flow. Um, and so 60%, if you take into account that 60% of the oil that is produced today is going to decline. And uh, so you will need to implement new projects to, let's say, to cope with the 40% 40, 40 of the charge that will be if there is no, if there were no new EMP uh, projects in the oil sector. Uh, so that's one, one, one of the issues that we have to take into consideration. And of course, uh, I think uh, uh, renewables will, will continue growing and, uh, and they will, they will let's say, take their share, uh, as, as you mentioned, Benjamin, in, 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 the near, in the near future. And uh, everyone wants, wants to go greener. Besides that, the oil and gas companies are forced, we are forced to be greener ourselves. Uh, and that means, I mean, the, if the, uh, that is also from the exploration and production side, but also from the quality of the products that are produced in the refineries. And also another, uh, let's say, effect that we will see in the future is a better combustion process in the um, vehicles that we use. I like the fact that you said, and this is a very good point and, and well taken, on the fact that yes, obviously uh, the renewables are going down in prices, but use the, the hydrocarbons as well, and, and they can become very more competitive, and maybe that will lead us to a healthy mix and diversification of the generation and consumption of on, on, on different energy sources. Yeah, I, I also agree. Uh, as the market progresses and becomes uh, more ready to uh, do the gradually replacement. Uh, this will naturally take place with the decline of the oil production and the gradual uh, complementary increase of the renewables. But the point that Carlos mentioned is that we must be ready from a local perspective mainly because that's where renewables apply. So I think uh, this will be an interesting time to, to be observed. Well, thank you, Carlos. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you, Rodrigo. Uh, this was a great discussion. Um, as I recap, I think it's not time of uh, complaining. It's time to plan and win. And maybe if we don't win, we need to act fast, pivot and replan and redo it if needed. Uh, but it clearly for me, I think business as usual is no longer an option for the oil and gas industry. Uh, we will believe in uh, very interesting times. And in my view, uh, these times will be times of evolution. As we discussed today, we are evolving uh, on the relationships of the various stakeholders of the industry, the relationship of oil companies and contractors. We expect a great evolvement of the relationships between uh, the industry players and the government authorities and also the evolution uh, between the, the oil companies and customers uh, in general. So I think it's an interesting time that we'll be living in the upcoming years. And I thank you so much for uh, contributing so much for this debate and also to contributing as well on a daily basis for the evolution of the industry. 
so we want to thank you all again for joining us in the Latin America Oil and Gas Amid COVID-19 podcast. On behalf of the Latin American Energy Mining and Infrastructure Team, uh, we are